Hello. Quick question. Um, in an airport departure lounge, um, particularly talking about the fragrance section, what do you do? Uh, please discuss on your tables. What do you do when you walk through the duty-free fragrance section of an airport departure lounge? Have a chat. So um, I was having this conversation with uh, a bunch of people around uh, a table at lunchtime um, at a conference uh, a year ago in Geneva, and we were at a 24-7 prayer conference, and um, a sp the speaker in the morning had referenced what he does in airport departure lounges with the fragrance stuff, right? And what he does, which sounds slightly weird and possibly insulting to his friends, is he smells these different fragrances, and when they remind him of one of his friends, he takes a photo of the perfume and sends it to them. And he, he says, you know, they don't take it offensively. It's not like I'm saying they smell, but if certain fragrances remind me of certain people, so I say, oh, I think this would suit you, and I send a photo. And so we were discussing around the table, well, what do you do? And my boss, Rich, said that he always tries a different, like, aftershave one every time to try and discover new fragrances, and so he'll always pick a different one. And then I said around this table over lunch, I just said... Um, Oh, I always go for the one that I could never afford to wear. Because I'm like, and, and then the, the, the person next to me, uh, who I kind of vaguely know, because he's like old school 24-7 community, he goes, what one's that? And I said, Chanel, like every time. Um, because I could never afford to wear it normally. So I just crack on with Chanel when I'm in, in airport duty-free. And, uh, and he said, I'll buy you some. And um, I'm, I'm British, so I, 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 I awkwardly laughed and went, <laughs> no, you won't. And because what do you, no, genuinely, what do you do when someone says, I'm going to buy you Chanel perfume? So I sort of went, no. <laughs> uh, and he goes, which one? And, and, and I said, well, I'm currently wearing Chance because I've just flown this morning for this conference. So that's what I tried today. And he went, I'm going to buy you some. And I just um, ignored him and uh, <laughs> moved on with the conversation and basically turned my back on him for the rest of the time. Because what do you do when someone says that? <laughs> Anyway, so later on that evening, uh, we were in the like in, in a crowded kind of area after the evening session, and uh, this guy walks up to me with a gift bag, and he hands it to me, and just goes, "That's for you," and walks away. And um, inside the bag, was this Chanel chance, and uh, Geneva. I don't know whether you know this. It is the most expensive city in Europe out. It is crazy, the prices for like anything. Like a croissant's like four quid. It's like jokes. <laughs> so when this guy actually gives me Chanel from city centre Geneva, not duty-free, what do you do? What do you do with that? Now, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know my story. So he didn't know that actually that weekend, uh, personally, I was in a really vulnerable place. There was a lot of things that I felt like I was waiting and holding my breath for. A lot of hopes, a lot of expectations, a lot of apparent promises that weren't yet fulfilled. And so actually this time at this conference was personally quite sensitive. I was feeling quite vulnerable, but you wouldn't know that because it's not like you overshare at a random table with loads of people. But that was what was actually going on. So although he didn't say it, we both knew that that wasn't really from that guy from the 24-7 prayer community. That gift was from God. He, that's why he didn't need to say anything. He didn't explain it. He didn't, you know, it's not like we, we, we've kept in touch or anything like that. He just delivered the gift and walked off because we both knew there was something going on there around the Father God 
basically just being crazy, extravagantly generous to me as his daughter in a way that's like a real proud parent moment of going, you've not done anything for this, you've not asked for this, it's not even necessary. Oh, but it is beautiful, Miriam. Here's this perfume for you. Now, as it happened, the day after the conference, I just touched down the night before on a day off in York, I got a phone call out the blue that completely blindsided me and totally changed what my last year was about. And uh, what followed was a, a few really hard months, personally. Suddenly, this beautiful waste of a gift, crazy expensive perfume, didn't seem such a waste or frivolous or excessive anymore. Suddenly, every time I sprayed this on my wrists, put it on my neck, in fact, I wear it when I preach now to remind me, it felt like a skin-to-skin, close and personal reminder of the presence and generosity of Father God with me, just me, his daughter, so that when that bad news came, I already knew that God had my back, he was with me, and he was like, I, I crazy love you before you know that you're going to need to be reminded of that. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful waste. Perfume's not necessary. You don't need perfume for your body to function. But it does make life a little bit more beautiful. We're in the second part of our series of Luke, and... um, we're looking at how Jesus eats dinner with different people along Luke's street. And today we're actually going to enter the home of a Pharisee called Simon. Now, for those of you that don't know uh, who the Pharisees are, they were like a religious sect, part of the Jewish faith, but they, these guys were pretty extreme in how they expressed what it meant to follow God and be acceptable to God. Pharisees were the kind of people, guys, leaders in the society at the time, who set the moral bar and they set it high. These guys were the kind that were like, they wear white and they keep their whites white. They wanted to be seen as holy and pure. And for them, holiness meant separate from anything that could possibly be unacceptable to God or taint them. So Pharisees used to, in public, want to be seen as the set-apart ones. They can't touch anything that's not holy. They don't even go near it. In fact, they'll judge anybody who isn't a Pharisee. They've made all these extra rules and laws in order to keep this standard to be acceptable to God. It was in their business to come across as being right before God when everyone else hadn't quite made the grade. You'll, you'll know this probably, but in the gospel accounts, who Jesus has conflict and arguments with is always the Pharisees. You don't see Jesus getting into a fight with people that don't think they're morally high standing. It's the Pharisees, it's the ones, uh, all the Sadducees, the teachers of the law who think that they know how to get to God. That's who Jesus consistently has arguments with. So to be honest, it's quite a surprise that we see Jesus choosing to hang out with Simon, a Pharisee, and have dinner at his house. Before we even enter the scene, you need to know this isn't a relaxed dinner party. There's already going to be a bit of tension, a bit of drama. There's going to be some elephants in the room and some really awkward pauses because it's Jesus alongside people saying they know about God. So do you see this dinner party? It's not chilled out. Already you should take a deep breath before you start reading it. So we're going to read it now. It's a nice chunk of scripture from Luke chapter 7. You don't have Bibles on your table, but you do have them on your phone and on the screen. Um, We're starting at verse 36. If it helps you to read on your phones, I trust that you're not looking at uh, Facebook. Um, This is the story. This is uh, who Jesus goes to dinner with. 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar full of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, they sa he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one that had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a story of a beautiful waste. This is a story of offensive lavishness. This is a story of worship and of praise and of gratitude and of love. This is a story of somebody's response to the person and presence of the living Lord Jesus. This is a story about the unnecessary and the beautiful. Now, since we're on Luke Street, there's probably a few things you should know about the Gospel of Luke, because uh, all the Gospel writers write for a purpose and with an agenda. They're not all the same. That's why their accounts are a bit different. They're written at different times and in different ways. So, for example, Luke, um, we reckon he was a doctor and also wrote the book of Acts. So this is like Luke part one. He probably wrote the Gospel after Matthew, definitely after Matthew, probably after Mark as well, right? He read the, those two Gospels and decided to add in some more stuff that basically he felt the other boys have missed out. So Luke's a bit longer, he's got some more details, and Luke has an agenda with writing. So Luke particularly cares about the poor and the marginalized and the outcasts in society. So you'll notice it is in the Gospel of Luke that you see God pay attention to people that society at the time would have spat out and ignored. For example, when Jesus is born, it is in the Gospel of Luke that you read a heavenly choir appears to shepherds, outcasts, and like literally the dog's body job no one wanted to do. That's who the birth of Jesus is announced to. Shepherds, not just kings. It's in the Gospel of Luke that you hear time and time again how important women are in the ministry of Jesus. It's Luke that tells us it was rich businesswomen who funded Jesus' ministry. And so it is no surprise that in this story, even though Jesus is at a Pharisee's house, Jesus is paying attention to who? A woman, and in that society, women were considered lower than dogs. Like, literally, they were completely ignored, not real people. Not only a woman, but a sinful woman, so outcast from all of society and religious society. And yet, that is who Luke decides to tell the story about. That's very Luke to do that. Luke uplifts the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, so we do see some of that come out in who Jesus is eating with on Luke Street. 
Luke's also a masterful writer. So yes, he includes lots of details, but he's also famous for his speeches. So it's no surprise again that in the Gospel of Luke, this account, Jesus gets plenty of airtime. We get good documentation of Jesus saying riddles and speeches. Luke's speeches, that doesn't mean it's word for word what Jesus said, because the style of writing basically means Luke captured the essence of a person's message in these masterful speeches. So hence in Luke, you get these long speeches and the same thing in Acts as well. When like Peter preaches and 3,000 people get saved, Luke's written that speech capturing all of what Peter preached. Luke's pretty talented at that stuff. Now we also need to know about mealtimes because they are again really different to how we think about dinner parties today. So having dinner at a Pharisee's house wasn't a private affair and they weren't sat around tables like we are here. To have dinner with Simon was probably, particularly given it's the Pharisees, right, who want to be seen to be whiter than white. In fact, Jesus talks about them being like whitewashed tombs, like look clean but on the inside dead. He's pretty harsh to Pharisees, essentially. Simon, when he had a dinner party, he threw it in public, but not everyone was invited. That's the point. So they would eat at a table where it could have been in a busy courtyard. You would quite, quite commonly have crowds start to gather around and see who was eating with them. Kind of sounds a bit creepy, really, but they're basically on display. So it's not like the woman got into someone's house and crawled underneath the table and was like creepy about it. There were crowds around. This was a very normal public affair to eat. Another thing about the table is it's not like this table. So this woman wasn't in hiding underneath the table and they were sat on chairs or anything like that. Completely different. These guys would lie down and recline and kind of eat off mats off the floor. So they would all lean in. Oh, yeah, a little bit like that. To be honest, I don't think the pictures on the internet were that helpful, but never mind. That's the best I could do. They would lean in on their elbow and eat with their feet facing away from the table. A little bit like a Pilates exercise. And... um, (laughs) You're welcome. And um, that means that, again, the woman wasn't like creeping under the table trying to wash his feet. His feet were right there, faced away from the food, so she could just come out the crowd and wash his feet. So the scenario would have been much more public, much more bustling. Another thing you need to know about eating together is that for the Pharisees, for the Jewish tradition, to eat with somebody at the table was a prophetic symbol of what would one day happen in a heavenly banquet, right? At the end of time, when God is on his throne and everybody gets to heaven and in eternity, um, to eat with somebody at the table is basically saying, you are welcome in the kingdom of God. You are one of the ones that has made it to the heavenly banquet. So Pharisees only ate with other Pharisees or people they deemed as clean. So they wouldn't, that woman would never be invited to the table, ever. In fact, most of society weren't good enough to one day make the heavenly banquet, according to the Pharisees. The table was a prophetic symbol of who was welcome in the kingdom of God. So you see, this whole scenario, this whole scene is electric with drama. There's a lot going on here. Because straight away, Jesus has been accepted at the table, and they think he's a prophet. They're not recognizing him as God. And then you get this brave woman who personally is known in the town for being sinful, however you want to interpret that. She then has the bravery to come through the crowd. She is unclean. She then goes to the table of the people who are so intent on keeping their whites white, they would never go near her. She reaches out and touches Jesus. That makes Jesus unclean in the eyes of his guests. It's a massive culture of shame or honor at that time as well which means what you've got is Simon hosting his dinner party and suddenly an unclean person has come to the table and made his guest unclean. 
This isn't just, oh, that's a bit awkward, someone's walked into our party. It's like she's completely tainted the whole experience and in public, which means a huge amount of shame has just happened. But this is what's extraordinary because it's as if this woman literally doesn't care what anyone but Jesus thinks. She goes through the crowd even though she's not welcome. She goes and touches the feet of Jesus even though to the, his company that would have been scandalous. And she, she basically acts in a way that would have also brought a lot of shame and scandal at the time. She let her hair down. That was a sign of like, sex, that was like a sexual sign. So women didn't let their hair down. Secondly, she's touching and caressing and kissing his feet. Again, that's quite sexualized, considered unclean. And she's pouring perfume, which would have been expensive, particularly for her. She's just pouring out like a beautiful waste on the feet of Jesus. Because it's him. Because it's Jesus. So it really doesn't matter to her what anybody else says or thinks. What a beautiful waste. Now, it doesn't take a genius to work out what Simon the Pharisee's reaction is going to be to this. So although this is funny, like throughout the Gospels, you see like moments where the writers say basically, Jesus knows what you're thinking. This is one of those moments where he thought something and Jesus answered his question in his head because Jesus is God. So he can do that stuff. But it wouldn't have taken a genius to guess, uh, Jesus, a genius Jesus to guess <laughs> that Simon would not be okay with what's just gone down at his dinner party. And so, in response, Jesus asks him basically like a riddle. Now, that isn't just Jesus being quirky, that is also very common of the time. It was quite normal practice at dinner parties for hosts and guests to swap riddles and tales and guess like each other's answers and stuff like that. Like, that was how they like played fun before Monopoly Deal or whatever, you know, I don't know. Anyway, so Jesus was telling a riddle, that's not that unusual. But, the riddle's quite interesting. He asks Simon, who will be more grateful out of two peoples whose debts have been paid? The one whose bigger debt has been cancelled or the one who owed less and that debt gets cancelled? And it kind of sounds like a trick question. Simple answer. The one who had more debt who got cancelled, they'd be more grateful. Now, think about this. Is Jesus saying that if you have more sin and therefore you're forgiven more, you love Jesus more in response. Is that what he's saying? Because on surface level, if we don't actually dig into this and think about this moment in the context of who we know God to be and the truth of way more scripture than this one like little riddle, on surface level, it could look a bit like that. If, if you've sinned loads and God, therefore God has to forgive you loads, and therefore you love him loads, but I've not really sinned very much, so God didn't have to forgive me much, so I'm kind of a bit more apathetic about God. Is that really how it works? What's key is it's less about the grading of sin and more about the gratitude for receiving forgiveness. Simon and the woman can both access full forgiveness and the lavish love of God in equal measure. God doesn't do... That sin's awful, that sin's sort of fine. You owe me more, you owe me less. He doesn't do that. You don't see that in any of the narrative of scripture. It's not like this riddle suddenly changes the whole game. God doesn't grade sin. In fact, scripture says all, all have sinned. Everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. So both Simon and the woman can access the same love and forgiveness to the same level. God isn't showing favorites. What makes the difference is their response 
their response to what God is offering them. And Jesus basically makes rather a cutting statement in public. He makes a cutting observation in front of everybody. And bearing in mind, we know there's more people that we don't know about that are not mentioned in the story probably listening in, right? So this is not great. This is conflict, right? This is not great times for Simon, the Pharisee, because he's kind of been shamed already. And then Jesus goes a step further and reveals what kind of host he's been in public. Basically, Jesus says, that Simon didn't show Jesus any of the hospitality that the culture of the time would have expected and practiced. There was no foot washing. That would have been normal. There was no greeting with a kiss. That would have been normal. There was no oil on his head. That would have been normal. There was no honor of Jesus as a guest. In fact, Simon's response didn't really show much honor to Jesus at all, let alone any sense of acknowledging Simon might need to be grateful to Jesus in any way. Simon didn't understand whose presence he was in. He didn't know that he was sat at the table with God. Now, the nameless woman, on the other hand, clearly understood Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as God, the saving one. And she must have understood that before the meal happened. Because we can assume we know that from how she entered the scene. She didn't enter the scene, get forgiven by Jesus, and then pour out an offering on his feet. She entered the scene prepared with an offering, going straight for Jesus because she knew what he'd already done and given to her. So her response was, I need to get near him, I need to touch him, I'm so grateful, I'm so thankful, have everything, have the beautiful waist on your feet, I'm, I'm here for you, Jesus. It's a beautiful, unnecessary offering. In response to, she already knew the presence of God was there. She already knew who God was, and she already knew that because of God, she was accepted at the table. It is not about Jesus' response to our love, it's about our response to his love. We're all forgiven by the same God, but how we receive this forgiveness is key. If you don't recognize your need for God, if you don't recognize that you're loved by God, you're unlikely, like Simon, you're unlikely to have your hands wide open to him. If you recognize your need for God and recognize your need for forgiveness and grace, you're, unlikely, you're, you're more likely to have a response that is, I need this rather than, I don't think I do. Simon basically missed the point, which is kind of understandable because it's kind of, classic Pharisee behavior (laughs) in the sense that the Pharisee thought they had to earn their way into God's good books. So he wasn't sitting there thinking Jesus was God and that Jesus could forgive him and do it all for him. Simon thought he was doing a pretty good job at earning his way to heaven and being holy. Simon basically just had his arms folded. He didn't think that Jesus could forgive. And anyway, he thought he was doing pretty well at being sin free. Why would I need to receive a gift of forgiveness? I'm getting there on my own. The sinful woman, she'd found the secret. She got that grace is a free, extravagant gift. Her only part in this was to open her hands to receive it. And then, receiving all of the goodness and forgiveness being offered her, she couldn't help but pour it out on his feet. Our capacity to love is directly affected by our capacity to receive love. I was in Ireland in July, and there was this girl who wants to be a journalist, so she was doing some, like, blogging and article writing over the summer to practice, essentially. And so she said to me, it was, she, she got like a, a feature in a Christian magazine, and she said, can I interview you? Because I'm trying to build up like a portfolio. And I was like, yeah, of course you can. So we, um, we sat down, and she got a recorder out, and we had a little interview. And kind of the normal questions happened. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Um, what's your testimony in terms of how you've met God and why you follow him now? Stuff like that. And then she asked me this one question that was really simple, but it caught me off guard in a really good way. And... Um, I found it really helpful because she basically asked, 
what's the best thing about being a Christian? And I paused. I looked at her and I suddenly broke into like a little smile and I just said, Jesus. Like, no, but when you've met him, when you've met Jesus, well, it's him. So it changes everything. Like to know the living and active, real presence of God in you and with you. It's the person of Jesus. And I was telling my friend this story on Friday night and, and just saying how that had struck me, how true that was. And, and he started crying just by saying that answer. What is the best thing about being a Christian? I'm like, oh, if you'd met him, you'd know. It's Jesus. It hands down. It's, it's meeting Jesus. What we see in the woman is her response to the person of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. The Jesus written about in the Bible who we can discover in these pages. The Jesus who is complex and mysterious and incredibly kind and powerful. The Jesus who makes God knowable, who accepts a sinful woman, who forgives before we've even had a chance to utter the word sorry. The kind of God who provokes extravagant, beautiful wastes of a response in return. It's Jesus who keeps me full of faith and hope and love. What's the best thing about being a Christian? It's Jesus. And Jesus shows us what the most beautiful waste of all really looks like. Now, buying a woman Chanel perfume so that she knows God's with her just before she goes through a hard time could look like a beautiful waste. But in the eyes of God, it kind of makes perfect sense. Pouring expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus in response to his forgiveness, despite the judgment of others, could look like a beautiful waste. But in the eyes of God, it makes perfect sense. Dying, a brutal death on the cross, but it's not even about the physical death. Separating himself from his life source, God the Father, could look like a beautiful waste of a young 33-year-old Jewish rabbi's life, with a whole bunch of young followers around him who still need a lot of training, don't really know what's going on. And instead, Jesus lets himself go and get killed. That could look like a beautiful waste. Except when you realize what that whole offering of a life was about. Except when you realize that Jesus, being cut off from the life source of his father, for a moment, meant that we never have to experience that death. We never have to be disconnected from God. The presence of God and the love of God from now forever. Physical death can't even touch us compared to spiritual life, which continues way after our bodies are gone. At the time, maybe this young rabbi hanging on a cross, it just looked like a waste of a life. But it's beautiful when you realize what it did for eternity and what it does for us. And I guess that's what the woman recognized. Jesus hadn't died yet, but she knew he was the Messiah, the one who could save. So she poured out her life in response to him. This side of the cross, having seen Jesus died, risen again, and knowing that he's knowable now, the question is still the same. What is our response to the living person of Jesus? The beautiful waste of a life that actually turned everything upside down and meant we never need be separated from the love of God because Jesus went through that for us. For those of us who follow Jesus, there might be times in our lives when God asks us to respond in a way that seems like a waste to the world but it's really beautiful to God. The kind of times when people maybe turn their noses up on how you're behaving or what you're doing, think you're stupid, illogical, dangerous, crazy, 
but it just smells like an amazing perfume offering in the kingdom. I would want to ask you the question that if your life looks just the same as the people around you who don't yet know Jesus, who've not met him, who aren't in any way responding to his love, if your life looks just the same, if in every area of your life you make total sense to people that don't follow Jesus, that you seem just the same as people in the world, I'd question that. I would invite you to look in the mirror with God the Father and pray and ask him, what do you see? Because I'm from the kingdom, not from the world. What do you see, God? How do I live out a life that to you is beautiful, even though for the world it shouldn't always make sense? If you are just the same as your family and friends that don't yet know Jesus, if everything you do makes total sense to the world, I'd question it because you're not from the world. If you follow Jesus, you're from the kingdom of God. And that means you're going to do some things that don't make sense on this earth, but do make sense in heaven. Perfume isn't necessary, but it is beautiful. It's a little bit like the Holy Spirit. We can get a lot done in the church without the presence of God. We can get a lot done without prayer, but it won't be beautiful. It won't be half as beautiful if we didn't invite God into the whole process and the way we live this thing out. This week, um, a couple of friends of mine um, felt called to give away a lot of money the same week as they're trying to get a mortgage approved. That is stupid, just to be clear. In the world's eyes, you don't empty a bunch of money from your bank account when the bank's looking at your bank account to work out whether to give you a mortgage. But they felt that's what God invited them to do. And so in an act of what can only be described as a beautiful waste, they gave away a lot of money whilst they're trying to get their mortgage approved. And um, it was really cool, actually, because the same, like, the, the next day, um, some money came through the door. Not enough to pay what they gave away, of course not. But this cool, like, mystery envelope moment of going, oh, I think God is actually still going to provide for us, even though right now it looks like we can't get a house because we did that. And they also got given a car. They weren't even asking for that. They, they needed one. Like, it is breaking, the other one. But um, they didn't give away because they thought they'd get back. And if you actually added up the value, probably wouldn't be the same. That's not the point. The point is they're just trying to be obedient even when the world goes, that's stupid. But you know what? I think Jesus just might be worth it. So I'm just going to go for the beautiful waste of my life and give away even when the world would say that's silly. Some of you, lots of you know Gavin Freya. They just moved from G2 having spent like nine years here. And uh, when they met with some mortgage advisors down south, um, they got a brilliant response. So they're sitting with the estate agents or the mortgage advisors or whoever they were, and they, they look at what Gavin Freya are doing on paper, and they literally said, this doesn't make any sense. You are, going, you are going down to one salary, you are moving south, and you're having a baby. You've done it the wrong way around. You are doing the opposite to what everybody does in your age and life stage. You're supposed to go the cheap end of the country at this point, you know. And um, they, they literally said, this doesn't make any sense. And of course it doesn't. But we've got this little inkling that the invitation of God is a beautiful waste. And so, of course, they're going to go because they just think Jesus might be up to something. We've got members of our church community here who aren't doing your normal grad schemes after uni. In fact, they're working part-time in bars and coffee shops in order to give their time unpaid to pray and to worship in St. Cuthbert's House of Prayer, where hopefully our 24-7 prayer week will be. That makes no sense in the eyes of the world. That is not the grad scheme your parents pray for. In fact, what does prayer and worship for hours and hours on end do? Can we, can we put a tick list of how we immediately see the fruit of that? No. 
It's way more mysterious than that. That is a beautiful waste of time. Waste your time with Jesus because they honestly believe and we honestly believe as a community it is better to be with Jesus even when we can't see the results of spending time in his presence and telling him how amazing he is than without. We would rather pray for many things rather than try and do some things. We would rather spend a week on our knees than try and crack on on our own. It's a beautiful waste. My encouragement to us all as we go forward into our weeks, into this academic year, into whatever season you're currently in, is to ask yourself the question, how might my life be a beautiful waste in response to Jesus? How is my life a beautiful waste in response to Jesus? The Pharisees did things to be seen. The sinful woman acted in a way that it would have been actually better for her not to have been seen. But because it's Jesus, she was prepared to do it anyway. This isn't about public acts of random, like, acts of kindness and things like that. It's not about just sporadically trying to do something crazy. It's not about being foolish. But it's about... mainly in the secret space, how are you wasting your time for the glory of God when the world would go, you make no sense, and Jesus goes, I know, but I love it. That is a beautiful waste of your time. Perfume isn't necessary, but it is beautiful. How are we offering God a beautiful waste? I'm simply going to pray for us because... um, that's good. No, <laughs> I'm going to pray just to give us a moment to ask the presence of God, the beautiful perfume of the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, to fill us and to begin to speak to us. And um, I guess as we worship in song, in prayer, in your own hearts and thoughts, um, think about what it might it be if our community is acting as a response to what Jesus has already done for us. How might even now our worship be a response at the feet of Jesus, just like that one outcast woman. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray for us and then we'll sing together. And Father, thank you that your presence is here. Jesus, I acknowledge your presence in this room and in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, God. Thank you, Father, that because we are gathered in your name, you come and dwell amongst us more thickly, more richly. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill our hearts afresh with love for you. Presence of God In scripture, it talks about the aroma of Christ. God, I'd love it if G2 was like this unmissable, catch-you-off-guard aroma of Christ in everywhere we work and live and travel and parent and serve and worship. Holy Spirit, will you help us be like a perfume offering to you? Jesus, I'm so sorry for when myself and Probably all of us are like the Pharisees. God, I'm so sorry when I've thought that I could either earn your love or I've just not recognized your presence. 
I've just not responded to you with any sort of gratitude, God, because it's like I've forgotten what you've done for me. I'm sorry, Father. Save us from when we have our Pharisee days. And Jesus, help us. Help us be more like the woman who knew what it was to receive outrageous grace. Lavish love. And eternal forgiveness. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open 